The latest jobs report shows hiring cooled off a little last month. The unemployment rate dipped to 3.5%, a sign the labor market remains robust despite some industries' high-profile layoffs. Our story is coming up on this Friday, April 7th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, two months after the deadly earthquakes in southern Turkey, millions of survivors are coping with the mental health toll of the disaster. A pregnant woman in Texas knew her baby wouldn't live long, but she says she felt forced to continue the pregnancy. One reproductive rights advocate weighed in. Where is the state of Texas to provide the safety net for her after forcing her to give birth to a child that didn't survive and never would? We have the family story coming up. It's 401 News Headlines, Wall Street numbers, and the weekend forecast are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Vice President Kamala Harris is bringing the Biden administration's push for tougher gun control measures to Nashville, Tennessee today. NPR's Ozma Khalid reports Harris is making a stop in the city a day after two Democratic members were expelled from the statehouse. Two Democratic lawmakers were kicked out of the legislature on Thursday for joining a protest on the House floor over gun laws. President Biden described the move as shocking and undemocratic. And Harris is now in Tennessee to meet with state legislators, young people and advocates for gun reform. A White House official says she'll make clear what happened in Nashville and also call on Congress to pass an assault weapons ban. That's NPR's Ozma Khalid reporting. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is responding to a news report that accused him of failing to disclose trips paid for by a conservative billionaire. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports Thomas says he was advised that he didn't have to report them. In the statement, Justice Thomas says that he was told that the luxury trips he went on with GOP mega-donor Harlan Crow didn't need to be reported in his disclosure forms. He says he has, quote, endeavored to follow that counsel throughout his tenure and always sought to comply with the disclosure guidelines. Thomas also noted that the disclosure guidance is now being changed and he will report similar trips in the future. The ProPublica report renewed calls from Democrats for a code of ethics at the high court. Thomas has faced ethics scrutiny before, including for not recusing himself from cases dealing with the January 6th insurrection, despite his wife's involvement in trying to get officials to overturn the election. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Cleanup operations continue across many parts of the South and Midwest after a series of tornadoes touched down in recent days. Brandon Tabor with member station KASU reports recovery efforts are underway in Wynn, Arkansas, after a twister ripped through the town last week. Lynn Blake leads Cross County, Arkansas, where Wynn is the county seat. Blake says the city and county have received support at all levels of government, from other county officials to the White House. He said that after getting over the shock of the moment, the community is now looking to the future. We've hugged and cried together and Now it's time for us to start rebuilding our community, and we're going to work hard at doing this. The tornado destroyed Wynn High School, where students had been dismissed early before the tornado hit. They'll finish out the school year at the local community college. For NPR News, I'm Brandon Tabor in Jonesboro. Wall Street is closed today in observance of Good Friday. Trading resumes on Monday. Stocks across Asia closed higher today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Bay State College in Boston has changed leadership during a time of crisis. We learned today the school's interim president, Jeffrey Mason, resigned Monday. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that leaves a new acting president in charge of a fragile transition. In an email sent this week, Bay State's leaders confirmed that Chief Financial Officer Kevin Derivan will take over as acting president. The for-profit college is set to lose its accreditation at the end of August, and dozens of students are still worried about what comes next. In their email, college leadership promised multiple transfer options for students not set to graduate. They also said Derivan's goals will be to sustain high-quality education through Bay State's likely closure this summer, to seek potential partnerships with institutions who might want to absorb parts of the college, and to help current Bay State staff find new work elsewhere. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Plans are underway to bring the first offshore salmon farm to New England waters. The New Hampshire company, a New Hampshire company wants to put 40 submersible fish pens in the ocean about eight miles off the coast of Newburyport. Blue Waters Fisheries wants to farm salmon and steelhead trout. Its plans still need approval by several federal agencies. Opponents say they're concerned that the storms could damage the pens and allow non-native fish to escape and breed with wild salmon. Police have wrapped up a day-long search of some Revere wetlands in connection with the murder of a New Hampshire girl. Five-year-old Harmony Montgomery disappeared in 2019. Her remains have never been found. Her father, Adam Montgomery, is charged with second-degree murder. This afternoon, police from Manchester, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts state troopers checked areas along Lynn Marsh Road in Revere. And... Also in the news, just about all of Massachusetts is under a red flag warning. The National Weather Service says gusty winds, low humidity are creating conditions where brush fires can quickly spread. Brush fires have been reported already today in Weston and Burlington. In Burlington, fire destroyed a home. The Weather Service is advising against any outdoor burning today. The Cape and Islands are not under a red flag warning. Got to see some sunshine earlier today, but now it's all about the clouds. Overcast skies continue tonight. Things should clear out by morning. Still windy tonight. Lows about 30. Holiday weekend is looking beautiful but cool. Sunny skies tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures should top out just below 50. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The high-flying U.S. job market lost a little altitude last month, but forecasters say there is still a chance for a soft landing. The Labor Department said today that employers added 236,000 jobs in March, fewer than the month before, but the unemployment rate remains low, in fact, very low, and unemployment among African Americans dropped to its lowest rate on record. And Pierre Scott Horsley is here to explain all. Hey, Scott. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, so we keep hearing all about layoffs, including, unfortunately, at NPR. Um, but it seems like a lot of other employers are hiring. So what's going on here? Yeah, we are still seeing a lot of job growth, especially in service-oriented businesses like restaurants and entertainment. Even the tech sector, where a lot of those layoff announcements have come from, actually added a few thousand jobs on net last month. Overall, the pace of hiring was down from February, but University of Michigan economist Betsy Stevenson says this is a job market that is slowing down, not stalling out. 
this report is just about as good as it can be. It's slowing slightly and wage growth is slowing slightly, which is exactly what the Fed wants to see as they're trying to tap the brakes on the economy without crashing the car. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates in an effort to slow the economy and get inflation under control, Mm. but it's trying not to tip the economy into recession. That's the so-called soft landing you mentioned. Uh, From that perspective, this is an encouraging report. Uh, Wage gains, which the Fed's been watching closely, have eased in recent months, and that should take a little pressure off inflation. All right. Tell me more about the unemployment headline I mentioned. What's happening there? Yeah, the unemployment rate ticked down just a bit to 3.5%. That's encouraging because at the same time, we saw a big influx of new workers. Nearly half a million people came off the sidelines and joined the workforce in March. The African-American unemployment rate dropped all the way down to 5%, which is the lowest since the government started tracking it back in 1972. Now, that sample size is fairly small, so the numbers bounce up and down a lot. But Stevenson says there are other encouraging signs here. For example, the share of African-Americans who are in the the workforce is now higher than it was before the pandemic, unlike the share of whites in the workforce, which is still not fully recovered. African-Americans just pour back into the labor market, and there's a lot of jobs out there. They're looking for them, and they're taking them. Uh, the Latino unemployment rate was also down last month to 4.6 percent. Huh. All right. So that sounds like a, a fair bit of good news. Is there bad news in today's report? You definitely see the fallout from those rising interest rates in sensitive sectors like construction and manufacturing. Construction companies cut 9,000 jobs last month. Factories cut about 1,000. We've kind of been expecting that. Uh, A monthly survey of factory managers has shown declining orders for seven months in a row. Uh, And Tim Fiore, who conducts that survey, says managers had been keeping workers on the payroll in anticipation of a rapid rebound, but now they're not so sure. Companies appear to be much more willing to reduce their headcounts, which the only reason they would be wanting to do that is that they're not really sure about demand two to three to four to five months out. The question now is whether those factory job cuts last month will be limited to the manufacturing sector or if they're a signal of what's to come for the broader economy. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. NPR Scott Horsley. The survivors of the huge earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria two months ago still tremble in fear at reminders of that night. More than 56,000 people died in the two countries. For the millions who experienced it but survived, shock and grief persist. NPR's Fatma Tanis went to one of the worst-hit cities in southern Turkey, Antakya, and has this report. The parking lot of a stadium, one of the few standing large structures in Antakya, is now a vast tent camp for thousands of earthquake survivors. It's overseen by the Turkish government and aid organizations. Children play outside some big tents that are covered in their drawings and labeled psychosocial support as their mothers watch from a distance. One of them is 34-year-old Hafsa Bashar escaped with her children when their six-floor building collapsed during the earthquake, crushing many of their neighbors. They hopped over the balcony which had fallen on their car. The only things they could manage to grab were their two parakeets. Since then, she tells me her young daughter has been unable to sleep at night, often waking up screaming. Bashar then started sending her kids to the therapy tent, where mental health professionals have volunteered to help children and families. I'm not sure how they did it exactly. They play some games with the children and talk to them. But my daughter is less panicked now. 
As we're chatting, a woman named Maida Hebele overhears us and approaches, two children in tow. She appears frazzled and at her wit's end with her kids. Her younger daughter, who's four, just won't stop crying, she says, going at times for four or five hours straight. She can feel it when the aftershocks happen, even when the wind blows. She starts crying and we can't calm her down. She started to be extremely jealous of her siblings too. Then there's her older daughter, who got briefly separated from her family the night of the quake and couldn't find them. Normally calm and well-behaved, the six-year-old girl will not leave her mother's side for a moment. Hebelit doesn't know what to do anymore. She has her own trauma and nightmares. They lost her home and several relatives. Her relationship with her husband has been suffering as a result, too. Hebelib hasn't heard about the mental health support. This camp is big and there's a lot going on. Hafsa Bashar, who has been sending her kids to therapy tents, tells her about the benefits she's seen after her kids worked with trained professionals. <laughs> One of them is John. A psychologist who, like many others here, took an unpaid leave of absence from her job to volunteer in the quake zone. The earthquake disrupted millions of lives, and Ipek says people are still in shock, unable to process their anger or grief. She says right now they're treating kids in groups, but people here don't have the security and stability needed for one-on-one -on -one therapy. They're still focused on getting shelter, food, water, and hygiene. But Ipek is also on the lookout for any signs of dangerous behavior, like suicide or psychosis. They're trying to educate people as well, especially women and children, to help protect them against abuse, sexual or physical and domestic violence. The scale of this disaster is so large, Ipek says they're looking at years of mental health support needed, not only for survivors, but first responders, rescue teams, and aid workers who've been traumatized too. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Antakya, Turkey. Baseball season just started, and a new study says that home runs may be on the rise due to warming temperatures. Ari Daniel covered the basis for us. Eleven years ago, baseball commentator Tim McCarver said this about home runs. I think ultimately it will be proven that the air is thinner now. There have been climactic changes over the last 50 years in the world. And I think that's one of the reasons that balls are carrying much better now. He was widely mocked for making this statement on air. Christopher Callahan is a Cubs fan and a climate science grad student at Dartmouth College. He says McCarver's comment also generated articles that did some rough calculations. I had read some of those and said, hey, we could try and find this in the actual data. Callahan considered the number of home runs from more than 100,000 Major League Baseball games going back 60 years, combined with temperature data. Instead of saying, is it warm or cold? We say, is it unseasonably warm for that location at that time? A question that's got nothing to do with other things, like what the bat's made of or whether players were doping. And then we say, well, are there unusually more home runs than there are normally? The answer, says Callahan, is yes. Dartmouth climate scientist Justin Mankin, who worked with Callahan, says it's due to warmer air being less dense than cooler air. Some more space between the air molecules, and so a ball 
is just going to encounter less air resistance and it's going to fly farther. I spoke with Michael Mann, who directs the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media, and wasn't involved in the research. He says there may be another factor at play, heat stress on pitchers who have to hurl the ball over and over. But a hitter that just has to get up there once and hit the ball and then they're done for a while. And so hitters have more of an advantage over pitchers. So on warmer-than-usual days, the thinking goes, they'd hit more home runs. But that's where a second data set steps up to the plate. That is a missile, and it's 2 nothing Yankees! I know we're going to get the stats on this. That's one of the fastest home runs I've seen here at Yankee Stadium. That's from a Yankees home game against the Cubs last June. Within seconds, the exiting velocity of Giancarlo Stanton's homer appears on screen, almost 120 miles per hour, according to a tracking system called StatCast. Here's Christopher Callahan. This system of high-speed cameras. So we have the launch speed and launch angle of individual baseballs coming off the bat. And at that point, all the other factors, including pitcher fatigue, don't matter. You're just looking at the speed and angle of a ball the moment it's hit. Callahan compared over 200,000 StatCast measurements from a five-year span. And sure enough... We can say that the same ball leaving the same bat ends up being a home run more often in warm conditions. Probably due to lower air density, he says. And if things continue to heat up, by the year 2100, we're likely to see several hundred more home runs per baseball season. This work is in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. Marshall Shepard is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Georgia who wasn't involved in the research. He says if the finding holds up, it's got broader implications. It's more than just the novelty of more home runs. I think it does raise a caution flag about the health and safety of both players and fans at these games. Finding this connection between home runs and temperature was only possible because of the vast amounts of data the MLB collects, says Justin Mankin. And these kinds of impacts are lurking everywhere, if only we could measure them. Climate change, it is fundamentally going to restructure our lives and livelihoods and recreation and well-being. Nothing escapes its touch. Nothing, not even a baseball sailing through a less resistant sky. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, Vice President Kamala Harris will meet with two black Democratic lawmakers in Tennessee who Republicans threw out of the state legislature yesterday for leading a raucous protest calling for tighter gun laws. That story and much more still to come on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's College of Arts and Sciences, presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. Wall Street markets are closed for Good Friday today. In other business news, Forbes magazine's list of billionaires is out and includes 25 people from Massachusetts. The wealthiest person in the state, according to the magazine, is Abigail Johnson. Johnson is CEO of Fidelity Investments and is said to be worth $21.6 billion. Other local billionaires include Patriots owner Robert Kraft, New Balance chair Jim Davis, and Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. A spring tradition in Boston is set to resume. Today, the city announced the swan boats will return to the Public Garden Lagoon next weekend. This will be the 146th season for the paddle boats designed to look like swans. As tradition holds, the mayor of Boston will host the first ride of the season, which will be next Saturday the 15th. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Been a pretty nice day today. Overcast skies overnight tonight. Things should clear up by tomorrow morning, though. Still on the breezy side tonight. Temperatures about 30. Then for tomorrow, sunshine. Temperatures only in the upper 40s. Same thing for Sunday. Sunny skies. Temperatures about 48 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Last month, the banking system found itself in deep trouble. Three U.S. banks went under, including, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Reserve does have tools that are supposed to help banks in times like these. One of the oldest, most important tools is called the discount window. It's essentially a place where banks can go when they need a loan. Mary Childs of NPR's Planet Money is here to tell us a bit of the history behind the discount window. Hi, Mary. Hey, Adrian. Okay, so the discount window, what exactly is it? The discount window is actually part of the reason the Fed was created in the first place. In the early 1900s, there were all these bank runs, and one of America's richest guys, J. Pierpont Morgan, stepped in, organized a big bailout, and everyone was like, that seems like kind of a bad plan if our entire banking system just relies on the good graces of some rich guy. So in 1913, the Federal Reserve was born. And its most basic function is as the lender of last resort. If a bank is having a hard time, it could always come to the discount window, a literal window at the time, and it could get a loan from the Fed and live to lend another day. So it sounds like the discount window is basically a a bank for banks. (laughs) Uh, Tell me a little bit more about how that works. So when a bank needs extra money, it can go to the window and hand over what's called collateral, any valuable thing that the Fed can sell if that bank doesn't end up being good for the money. And the bank gets the loan from the Fed. And at first, it was actually cheaper to borrow from the Fed at this window than from basically anybody else. And as a result, banks were borrowing from the window all the time, too much, relying on it, which kind of annoyed the Fed. They wanted to be the lender of last resort, not first resort. It's not really how an independent, privately run banking system is supposed to work. Okay, so too many banks were relying on this discount window. uh, And so what did the Fed do to try to address that? They added some disincentives. They tried just telling the banks, hey, please stop, don't use it so much. And that Mm -hmm. didn't really work. So at one point, they made it more expensive than other places where banks could borrow. And they tried this other way that ended up being super effective. They said, 
okay, you can borrow from the window, but you have to ask everybody else for a loan first. And only if everyone else says no, will we lend to you. And that requirement created a stigma. Here's Yesha Yadav, a professor at Vanderbilt University's law school. Banks are super reluctant to use a discount window. And sometimes they're willing to take the long way around to avoid being caught in this walk of shame. Okay, so Mary, did did banks then basically just stop uh, using the discount window? They tried, yeah. It was kind of a problem. They weren't using it when they needed it. So then the Fed had to go in the other direction and encourage banks to use it. They got rid of that requirement, and they workshopped a pretty brilliant hack, basically borrowed from high school. They got the cool kids to do it. Here's Yadev again. What happened was that to get folks to take the loan, they got the big banks to all borrow from the discount window to ease that sense of stigma and shame because it felt like the big banks are doing it, so can we. That's really funny. Peer pressure is so powerful. Peer pressure is so powerful, especially with the big cats. So in the 2020 recession sparked by the onset of COVID, the Fed encouraged the big banks to borrow from the discount window and then tell everybody that they'd done so. And that broke the stigma. It loosened up borrowing. And in our most recent bank freakout, banks used the window. In one week, bank borrowings from the discount window went from $5 billion to a record $153 billion. Wow. Okay. Uh, That was Mary Childs of NPR's Planet Money. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. The award-winning comedy Abbott Elementary is nearing the end of its second season. It's set in a fictional Philadelphia school, and it follows a plucky teacher who will stop at nothing to get her students what they need. I was called, I answered, and now I know, even with no help from the higher-ups and no money from the city, I can get this job done. Just how real is the show? WHYY's Aubrey Yuhas put that question to some real-life Philly teachers. Welcome! Nicole Wyglandowski, or Ms. Y, as her students call her, is a special education teacher at an elementary school in North Philadelphia. She's also an Abbott Elementary super fan and constantly compares herself to the show's characters, like Jacob, the corny history teacher. You know, before I taught here, I was in Zimbabwe. I was doing Teachers Without Borders. So this is very Jacob of me, but I taught abroad in Asia for a year after undergrad. Ms. Y watches the show every week and live tweets the whole thing. So when I decided to bring some Philly teachers together to talk about Abbott, she agreed to organize a watch party. Hey, Ms. D! An hour before the show starts, Ms. Y's teacher friends start to trickle in. There's wine and snacks, and while they nosh, the half-dozen teachers discuss the show. And one of its prominent themes, the state of school buildings. There's an episode where the show's protagonist, Janine, played by Philly native Quinta Brunson, tries to fix a flickering light. Oh, look at this. It was just a loose wire. And accidentally blows out the power in parts of the building. Maura McDade, a lawyer-turned-middle-school math teacher, says just like the building in Abbott, her school is plagued with issues. I got locked in my room the other day because my doorknob's been busted for (laughs) twice once my class was locked in it. The average Philly school is more than 70 years old. 
Most don't have central air conditioning and were built using lead and asbestos. Any other school district would have, you know, leveled this building and rebuilt new. <laughs> Philadelphia is the poorest of the country's 10 largest cities. And schools here have long suffered from chronic underfunding. Ms. Wine knows teachers who don't watch Abbott because it hits too close to home. But she likes the show because it's a comedy and there's truth in every joke. I can't believe they're actually talking about this on TV. Like, other people are going to watch this. And I have to laugh because if you don't laugh, like, you will cry. What it do, baby boobs? Ms. McDade's favorite character is the show's outrageously unqualified principal, Ava. When a student pees on Janine's rug, Ava comes up with the money for a new one, but decides to spend it on something else. A plastic sign? Thank God for the school district, because they gave us $3,000 and I had to spend all of it. Ms. McDade says even though most principals aren't anywhere near as bad as Ava. Watching the show and trying to figure out sometimes why you would possibly do what she does, I think <laughs> reflects sometimes on what teachers feel with administration. The show helps the teachers feel seen and allows them to process the sometimes absurd realities of their jobs. Veteran teacher Barbara speaks directly to those realities early on in the second season. Being a teacher is being asked to do the impossible year after year, and our only solution is to show up every day and try our best. With the show's 9 p.m. start a few minutes away, the teachers settle in front of the TV. And Ms. Y starts live tweeting. See? It's a Valentine's Day episode, and second grade teacher Melissa has been waiting for her boyfriend to call. Look, we finally decided to text. Just when she thinks all hope is lost, he tells her to look at the vending machine in the teacher's lounge. The chip bags say, I love you. You love me? Yeah. I love the crap out of you. That's very Philly. I love the crap out of you, baby. The show ends, and the teachers clear out fast. After all, it is a school night. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Juhas in Philadelphia. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still pretty mild out there. 52 degrees now. Strong winds overnight tonight. Starting off with cloudy skies. Lows about 30 degrees. Clearing skies by tomorrow morning. Making for a sunny weekend. Sunshine both tomorrow and Sunday with highs in the 40s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, track legend Jackie Joyner Kersey warns us all, even though she's retired, do not think to mess with her. Because you know I got the fold-up javelin oh, in my yeah. bag. Yeah. And Peter Sagal, join us for an all-star show with the greatest female athlete ever, plus Ed Helms, Bonnie Raitt, and our discovery of a comedian named Maz Jobrani. That's this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. Israel's military carried out limited strikes on Palestinian militant targets in southern Lebanon and Gaza today 
NPR's Daniel Estrin reports this comes as Jews, Muslims and Christians simultaneously mark major holidays. What a day to be in Jerusalem. Muslims have finished Ramadan prayers. Jews are celebrating Passover. Christians are marking Good Friday, all overlapping here in Jerusalem's old city. But we have seen fundamentalist groups try to take advantage of this situation to inflame tensions, and it's working. Israeli police have confronted Palestinians at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. We've seen rocket fire then from Gaza and also from Lebanon. Israel has struck back in both of those places, and we've also seen a shooting attack on Israelis in the West Bank. It's a chaotic time. We don't know where all this is headed, but you can also see moments of beauty and normalcy here in Jerusalem. People and families gathering here in this holy spot to to celebrate a really important moment, whether they're Jews, Christians, or Muslims. NPR's Daniel Esterin. The British Defense Ministry says Russian troops have regained some momentum in the battle for the Ukrainian town of Bakhmut. Villa Marx reports from London. Since late 2023, Russian forces had seen their progress largely stall around Bakhmut, but an intelligence update from the UK armed forces posted on Twitter said the Kremlin's troops were now, quote, highly likely to advance into the town centre. They have made further gains, the UK said, and had seized the west bank of the Bakhmutka River. As a consequence, Ukraine's supply lines from the west of the town to its remaining troops is, quote, likely severely threatened. British officials say Russian forces are once more using effective artillery in the region, with regular forces that are likely to include airborne troops arriving to secure the wider area. The UK Post also said troops from the mercenary company Wagner may again be cooperating with Russia's defence ministry. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Leaders of anti-violence groups in Boston say they're encouraged by the city's new effort to prevent gun violence. Today, the city and community groups concluded a week of workshops to talk about ways to move forward. Minister Randy Mohammed says for years his mosque has been training volunteers to work for peace in the community. He welcomes what Mayor Wu calls a holistic approach to alleviating violence. There's a commitment now to bring resources to those of us that have been doing this work, that are connected in the streets, that are working outside of the traditional organizations or tentacles of the city. Boston Mayor Wu says the city has the resources and expertise for a coordinated and sustained approach to make neighborhoods safer. Boston leaders announced plans today to honor prominent activist and black political leader Mel King. Mayor Wu will declare next Tuesday a day of remembrance. That's the day of King's funeral. He died last week at the age of 94. Several buildings in the city will be lit up in rainbow colors Monday and Tuesday in his honor. King founded the Rainbow Coalition Political Party, which is now the Green Rainbow Party. Investigators have identified a UMass Dartmouth student struck and killed by a car on campus. Frank Patillo Jr. was in his first year as a bioengineering student. He was found lying on a roadway yesterday and was pronounced dead at a hospital later. The driver of the vehicle involved has been identified. Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will be closed this weekend for repairs. It'll shut down at 11 o'clock tonight until 5 a.m. Monday. The closure is for Tunnel Restoration Project. The work began last spring and is expected to go into next year. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories. Working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. 
Cloudy skies, strong winds out there right now. Look for temperatures overnight tonight, just about 30 degrees. And then for tomorrow, should only reach the upper 40s. Tomorrow and Sunday both, in fact, but sunshine both days. Should be a nice weekend coming up. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Let's turn now to the story of a funeral in Texas and a warning. It involves the loss of a child. The baby's name was Halo. She was born last week. She only lived for four hours. Her parents knew she would not live long because she had been diagnosed with a fatal condition in utero. And this family's situation unfolded in a state with strict abortion laws, which is relevant here. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Steffen is about to explain. Hey, Selena. Hi, Mary Louise. All right. Tell me about Halo's mother. You spoke with her last week. Who is she? Yeah, her name is Samantha Cassiano, and she's 29. She and her husband, Luis Villasana, are raising five kids in their mobile home in East Texas. And in December, when she was 20 weeks pregnant, she was at a prenatal appointment when she learned that the fetus she was carrying had anencephaly, which means that the brain and skull were only partially developed. Her OBGYN told her the fetus was incompatible with life. Here's Samantha. And then I asked her, you know, hey, what are my options? And she says, well, because of the new law, you don't have any options. You have to go on with your pregnancy. The the new law being the new abortion law in Texas. And there are no exceptions for a case like hers? No, not in Texas. And in fact, very few states that restrict abortion do have exceptions for fetal anomalies. So if you're in this situation in Texas, one option is to travel out of state for an abortion. I reported in February about a woman who did that. She flew to Colorado. She said it cost over $3,000. And Samantha and Luis didn't have those kinds of savings. So they would have had to drive 12 hours to get to New Mexico. They couldn't arrange childcare. So she braced herself for five more months of pregnancy. Five months, God. How, how did she cope during that time? Oh, she says those months were awful. She has an office job and started working remotely so she didn't have to respond to people saying, how far along are you? And it was also painful to go to her doctor's appointments and see other pregnant women there. Here she is. I definitely feel like, you know, at, at when we found out she had anencephaly, I should have had that choice, that right over my own body and over my daughter's body to be able to tell my daughter it, it's time for you to rest because she was going to end up having to rest anyways. She spent months fundraising for the funeral. She was quoted $4,000. A nonprofit called First Touch Family also helped her fundraise, but she didn't have as much time to get money together as she expected because the baby was born last week, two months early on March 29th. And today the family had a small graveside service and buried the baby girl they named Halo. Today. Mm. Um... Selena, does Texas provide any public support for, for families like hers? No, and that's something Molly Duane pointed out when I spoke to her. She's an attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights. Texas leaves people to deal with the personal and financial fallout when they have a pregnancy like this, Duane says. Where is the state of Texas to provide the safety net for her 
after forcing her to give birth to a child that didn't survive and never would. I also spoke to Amy O'Donnell. She's with the Texas Alliance for Life, and she told me she does not support adding more exceptions to Texas's abortion laws. I do believe that Texas laws are working as designed. I also believe that we have a responsibility to educate Texas women and families on the resources that we have available to them. She says there are private organizations that can help with funerals, and her group would support public funds being used for that, too. Samantha and her family are getting some extra support. Since NPR published her story yesterday, many people were moved to donate to her funeral fundraising page, and they've now donated $30,000 and counting. NPR's Selena Simmons. Stefan, thank you. Thank you. Dreams of world peace are as old as wars, but as the women of Wales were recovering from the First World War, they demanded peace in droves. 100 years ago, 1923, a group of Welsh women drafted a petition for peace, and they got three quarters of all the women in Wales to sign on. Then they packed up the document into a big oak chest and sent it across the Atlantic so that women in America could join the movement too. Well, now it has made the journey back home to Wales. Professor and poet Mererit Hopwood is overseeing the effort to start digitizing the signatures and find out just who all these women were. She joins us now from Aberystwyth in Wales. Professor Hopwood, welcome. Thank you very much. Oh, it's lovely to have you and to hear that accent. I want to give people a sense of scale of this thing. Um, I've read that it's almost 400,000 signatures and that if you laid them end to end, they would stretch seven miles? Well, that's right. That's that's how it was reported when it arrived in New York. So it sat on this side, the American side of the Atlantic, for 100 years, and I gather was largely forgotten. How did it resurface? Well, that's right. So 100 years after the end of the First World War, people went rummaging around the Temple of Peace and Health in Cardiff, which is a magnificent archive. And there was a curious plaque sort of thing made of Moroccan leather with gold lettering, bilingual message saying something about this petition that nobody seemed to know about. We certainly we hadn't been taught of this in school or anything. So from then, the story was sort of recovered. And in 2017, the first email was sent to the Smithsonian to say, we believe this chest and petition is there. And it's from there that uh, we've been working to see how best we can digitize it. What kind of interest are you hearing from people today in Wales? Are people interested in knowing, like, you know, did my great-great-great-grandmother sign this? Or did the person who lived in my house 100 years ago sign this? That's like, You can't imagine the excitement that the truck arrived in the National Library of Wales last Wednesday. And, uh, and it was, yeah, an emotional moment. Just stay with that moment for a second. Is it still in that oak chest? Was there a moment where you got to open it? It was in the oak chest. These 400,000 signatures have been carefully put together in boxes. We were given white gloves and were allowed to open just a few to have a look. And as you can imagine, the inevitable thing happened. Hmm. One of the women in the gathering there almost said, oh, I know that house. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, I had a good little look, but didn't quite see anybody I could claim. Uh, But, you know, we will find these people (laughs) in the end. The original goal was so idealistic. And here we sit in 2023, and we obviously have not achieved a peaceful world, a world without war. Mm -hmm. For you, 
this history I can hear in your voice, it, it does bring hope. It brings joy. Tell me why. It does. The ambition. These people weren't afraid to think that this was possible. And the common sense approach. Okay, so how can we do that? Let's call on our sisters in the States to see if they can help bring that about. And I think, you know, one of the things we've had as a guiding principle for the partnership is this, to hold on to hope and to interpret hope not as a crossing of fingers, but as a, a power, an energy, a force that can enable us to do two things. First of all, to see that better place. And secondly, to know the way to get there. It is possible. We have to believe that. That is Mererit Hopwood, professor at Aberystwyth University and chair of the Peace Petition Partnership at the National Peace Institute of Wales. Thank you so much and good luck. Thank you. Diolchowal. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Russia's invasion of Ukraine exposed a U.S. national security problem. The country can't make rockets and artillery shells nearly as fast as they get used when two major countries go to war. That's triggered an effort to speed up munitions manufacturing in the United States. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports. U.S.-made artillery rounds are just empty steel until they reach this sprawling plant in southeast Iowa. This is where they're filled with explosives. Army Lieutenant Colonel Jason Christ runs the place. The Iowa Army Ammunition Plant was established in 1940. Its history kind of links back to the mobilization of the United States in preparation for World War II. The dawn of a big weapons manufacturing build-out, kind of like now. The plant's enormous, but it isn't producing artillery shells fast enough. The Ukrainians have been burning through in one month what the United States produces in an entire year. Mark Kansian, senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, says the U.S. has already sent Ukraine more than a million howitzer shells and thousands of missiles. That's exacerbating a problem that Kansian says traces back to a famous meeting at the end of the Cold War called the Last Supper, where defense industry leaders got word that without the Soviet Union to worry about, the arms race was over. There was not going to be enough business to keep them all going that they would need to consolidate. So industry listened and consolidated. Now Kansian says the threat of war with China or Russia hovers, and we are not ready. Those artillery shells coming off the line in Iowa, the Pentagon wants them made six times faster, along with a huge increase in missile production. Tall order according to Cynthia Cook. She tracks the defense industry for the Center for Strategic and International Studies and says just staffing up will be tough. One factory I talked to in the Midwest said that they had previously recruited in about a 50-mile diameter around their factory, but they had to increase it to a 400-mile diameter just to find people. And those people can't work without tools, parts, and raw materials. The machine tools you need might have a several-year back order. You have to develop your rail lines. And this is all just in the final assembly stages. You also have to surge your manufacturing industrial base, your entire supply chain. This all has to happen at the same time. It's a major push that's going to cost billions. 
but Congress seems more than willing to fund it. Defense spending is growing at an incredibly unsustainable rate. Julia Gledhill is a defense analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. Last year, we saw Congress add $45 billion more than the president and even the Pentagon asked for. And this year, the budget is likely to exceed $1 trillion. Gledhill says military spending excesses were common during the Cold War, like the Pentagon spending $435 for basic hammers. She thinks we're in for more stories like that. One major potential pitfall of surging weapon production is the increased risk of corporate price gouging. In their urgent rush to build weapons faster, Gledhill says lawmakers are practically inviting defense industry ripoffs. Congress has waived rules that would normally govern munitions purchases, allowing bigger multi-year orders. She says it's also scrapping accounting requirements that would otherwise force companies to justify prices. So there's a new arms race on. Military planners say the U.S. is behind. But catching up will be costly and possibly wasteful. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, we hear from one of the Republican Tennessee lawmakers who voted to expel two Democratic colleagues who had led a protest for gun control. That story is coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and the Peabody Essex Museum presenting Guwanda, United Nations, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Tonight, the Celtics host the Toronto Raptors at the Garden. Tip-off is 7.30. Celtics will be without Jalen Brown, who's got a finger laceration. As a day off today for the Red Sox and Tigers, they resume their series tomorrow and finish it up on Sunday. Sox won the first game. That was yesterday on their first road trip of the season. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at your app store today. This is 90.9 WBUR, 51 degrees at 449. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. A new movie asks, what does it take to make art? One of the film's stars has asked that question of herself. The work that I do before arriving on set doesn't really look like work to people (laughs) who aren't in, in this industry. Hong Chao on the artistic life and her new movie showing up. Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Have you ever had a gripe you just can't let go of? If you have, you might see a bit of yourself in the characters on Netflix's new series, Beef. You started this. Me. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, you're the one who backed into me like a psycho. You're the one that flipped me off. What starts off as a small case of road rage spirals into a full-on cyclone of revenge. This isn't just any ordinary beef. The two main characters, played by Stephen Yun and Ali Wong, are trying to ruin each other's lives. So stop messing with me and leave me alone, or else. You hear me? This is your last warning. You do not want to unleash the beast. It's been a minute host Brittany Luce sat down with Stephen Yun to break down this hate-fueled romp. Just to get a sense of how people should be thinking about your new Netflix series, Beef. Mm. What historical or a celebrity beef best describes the beef in Beef? <laughs> you know, all the best beefs are when people are equally measured, right? Mm. Tupac and Biggie don't beef unless they're like Tupac and Biggie. We tried to capture that best beef. I think Danny and Amy are equally matched rivals. They respect each other. There's a connection underneath the beef connection, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the idea that they're like equally yoked in a way and that there is some sort of connection beneath the beef because <laughs> I, first of all, I loved the series. Like me and my husband ran through it. To me, beef also kind of functions similarly to a rom-com. Like the characters mm. have constant tension and the show is always finding ways to bring them together, to make them collide. Yeah. I found that it gave me actually the same satisfaction in a way as watching a romantic comedy, but with pure hatred instead of <laughs> <laughs> romantic love. That's amazing. <laughs> but so much of what makes the relationship between Amy Lau, played by Ali Wong, and your character, Danny Cho, is, is this mutual recognition that they share. Like you said, neither is afraid to go toe-to-toe, kind of mm. to the death. Um, mm. <laughs> with the other person and, and you two really sell that tension. Thanks. When you came together to work on this show, what was that game recognized game moment where you realized that you were perfectly matched for this project? We got to meet each other here and there, but we never really connected. And I think coming onto this show, I couldn't fully see what was happening or what was possible until we started reading together. And I was like, ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Allie also has just this really warm personality and just warm presence that is really inviting, that is really nurturing and caring. And when you can feel safe and connected to each other off camera, you can really lay into each other on camera. The class tension on beef is palpable. It drives a lot of the story. Amy is rich. She didn't come for money, but she's living good. And Danny has been struggling financially all his life. And like naked explorations of intra-racial classism don't often show up a lot on TV. How do you see that as enriching the show? I think for us, like the framework of what we wanted to build beef around was just like, how do we get to the human quicker? We just kind of like flattened that whole landscape by being like, it's all Asian people. So now we can just get to who these people are mm. and anyone can access them. Then it's an open door and an invitation for anyone to sit at the table respectfully and eat from our table too and, and connect with us as human beings. Mm. Danny stands out to me for his <laughs> rage. What was it like to explore the depths of anger and greed and deceit that, that are within Danny? Because I, I could see it going either way. I could see it being cathartic, right? For sure. Don't get it twisted. I was rooting for Danny. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, rooting thank for him, you. right? Yeah, hell yeah. He hell was yeah. my guy. I was rooting for him. <laughs> I could see that going either way, though, playing him. Like I could see it feeling cathartic, but I could also see it as something that could burn you. 
Like what, what was it like? Playing Danny was at times asking me to revisit a part of myself that when I was younger, I didn't have a full handle over. With Danny, it wasn't that it was cathartic per se. I got tired mm-hmm. being that angry for so long. I got like, mm. <laughs> I was like, at some points I was like, oh, all right, I gotta do this today. Every day, you know, I'd show up on set and I'd just be like, Danny's doing what today? And I'm just like, how do I justify this? How do I not hate Danny? How do I love Danny? How do I never bail on Danny? Because Danny is a side of all of us. And how do I never bail so that the audience will never bail? Hmm. Ali Wong stated in an interview that you both broke out in hives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hives. You broke out in literal hives after filming. Like, What was so intense about filming that made it have that physical manifestation for you? You know, what was interesting was we realized that she broke out in hives on her face and I broke mm-hmm. out in hives on my body. And I was like, whoa, that's actually kind of incredible. That might be like the perfect analogy for how Danny exists and how Amy exists, which is like Danny only knows how to give of his body to get around. Like he has to fix something or climb something or like break something or like be used for his body. And the anger emanates from that place. And for Amy's character, she's just navigating a whole cerebral reality of higher upper echelon corporate Mm -hmm. world and it's a different ask they have different strengths you know the hives it was a release of tension for us as actors but you know looking back at it it's kind of cool it's just like it is that yin yang (laughs) 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 she completes the head and i complete the body and it's like it's pretty funny (laughs) watching minari and and nope and now this role in beef i kind of see like in three of these recent on-screen characters for you, this like, I don't know, this connection, like they're all men who are haunted or taunted in a way by the promise Mm. of success. And they're all coming at it from different angles, of course, and with different stakes at play. But to some degree, they're each willing to forsake something significant Mm. in order Mm. to finally get the success or achieve the thing that they believe is going to save them and fix Mm. everything. Mm. Does that feel true? And, and, And is that something that, you relate to? Oh, for sure. I wish I had concocted that triple feature to, <laughs> to explore it explicitly that way. But it feels like we're all trying to get away from ourselves. Hmm. We're so lost in comparison, looking at Instagram being like, I should have that, or I wish I had this. I had to get off of Instagram because I was like, unfollow everybody. Because I was like, if they're on my feed, it will just give me these mirrors back to me Mm. of me feeling inadequate about my own reality. Mm. I'm not trying to live that life. I got two kids. Like (laughs) I'm too busy (laughs) to be like caught in a rut like that. You know what I mean? And it was extremely helpful just to be like, okay, cool. Stop looking at other people's plates. It's it's so wild though. Cause like you've been so successful. I imagine that there are people who are going to be listening like in disbelief, right? That you would have those same feelings too. Well, you can eat, 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 and never feel full. I think everybody struggles with that, right? Mm. Um, I hope, otherwise I'll feel more alone. (laughs) (laughs) That was It's Been a Minute host Brittany Luce talking to actor Stephen Yun. His new show, Beef, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options, at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Overcast skies this evening and overnight tonight, but things should clear out by tomorrow morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, still windy overnight, about 30 degrees. And then for tomorrow and for Sunday, sunny skies, but cool temperatures right about 48 degrees both days. 51 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world, bc.edu slash msae. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has responded to a news report that he failed to disclose lavish trips he took that were paid for by a conservative billionaire, trips with a value of millions of dollars. Nina Totenberg's report coming up on this Friday, April 7th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones is one of two black Democrats Republicans expelled from the House yesterday. He says his infraction was trying to speak out on the House floor about gun safety, but he was denied. Anytime we brought it up, our microphones were cut off. We were ruled out of order. We did not have even a venue to voice the grievances of our community. Tennessee Republican Representative Jody Barrett addresses what happened and why he voted for expulsion. That story and the forecast and Wall Street numbers are coming up. This is WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Nashville, Vice President Harris meets today with two Democratic lawmakers who were expelled by the Republican-led state legislature for taking part in gun control protests on the House floor last week. NPR's Asma Khalid reports President Biden is calling the move shocking. Biden says the decision by the Republican-led House in Tennessee to expel two Democratic lawmakers is, quote, undemocratic and without precedent. It was an extraordinary measure that's only been used twice since the 1800s. And Biden criticized Republicans for ignoring the merits of the gun issue in the aftermath of a mass school shooting in Nashville and instead punishing and silencing duly elected representatives. He repeated his calls for Congress to pass an assault weapons ban and reiterated his push to require background checks for all gun sales. He called on state officials to do the same. Asma Khalid, NPR News.
China has sanctioned the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and a Washington think tank in retaliation after Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in California. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says the sanctions serve as a countermeasure against Tsai's transit through the United States. She landed in New York on her way to South America, then landed in L.A., where she met with McCarthy on her way home. Beijing has warned it may impose consequences for Tsai's meeting with McCarthy. A U.S. congressional delegation is visiting Taiwan. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler. And I think we've accomplished a lot in terms of gathering information with respect to our allies here in the Indo-Pacific. Their concerns, obviously, with the uh, threats coming uh, from uh, China. It's the delegation's third visit after Japan and Korea. The U.S. job market cooled a bit last month as employers added 236,000 jobs. NPR Scott Horsley reports the unemployment rate fell to 3.5%. Job growth has been gradually slowing since the beginning of the year, but the labor market doesn't appear to be stalling out. Bars and restaurants added another 50,000 jobs in March. Even the battered tech sector added 6,000 jobs. Rising interest rates and weaker demand for goods are starting to have an effect on the jobs numbers, though. Construction companies shed 9,000 jobs last month, while factories cut about 1,000 jobs. Wage gains have also been slowing. Average wages in March were 4.2 percent higher than a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before. The unemployment rate inched down in March, even though nearly half a million new workers came off the sidelines and joined the labor force. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street was closed today in observance of Good Friday, as were many markets across Europe. The U.S. bond market, though, had a shortened trading session today. The 10-year yield rose to 3.4 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A search in Revere connected with the murder of five-year-old Harmony Montgomery ended this afternoon. Montgomery disappeared four years ago in New Hampshire. Her remains have never been found. For a few hours today, police from Manchester, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts state troopers searched the wetlands along Lynn Marsh Road in Revere. State police did not release details. The girl's father, Adam Montgomery, is charged with second-degree murder. Strong winds and dry conditions today contributed to brush fires in Weston and Burlington. A home in Burlington was destroyed. Another in Weston was heavily damaged. The National Weather Service has been warning of the danger. It has a red flag warning in place for most of Massachusetts. National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Nocera says it's not unusual to have red flag warnings this time of year. We call this the pre-green-up stage where there aren't any leaves on the trees. The vegetation is still dormant, so it's a bit easier to ignite fires uh, this time of year. The red flag warning expires at 8 tonight. The president of the financially troubled Bay State College has resigned. The for-profit college today confirmed Jeff Mason stepped down earlier this week. A couple of weeks ago, the New England Commission for Higher Education upheld its decision to revoke the college's accreditation. The commission says Bay State doesn't have enough money to operate properly. The school says it's helping students transfer and is looking at partnerships with other schools to continue some programs. And prisoner rights advocates are pushing for an amendment to the state constitution that would restore the right to vote for people incarcerated on felony convictions. Backers of the amendment testified this week before a legislative committee. They told lawmakers people in prison deserve the chance to have a voice in a policy that affects them and their families. 
More than 20 years ago, Massachusetts voters passed a constitutional amendment that bans voting by people in prison who were convicted of felonies. And events got underway this weekend, or will get underway this weekend, to commemorate the 248th anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Tomorrow afternoon, the Minuteman National Historical Park will hold a ceremony commemorating the capture of Paul Revere by British soldiers. The park is hosting programs throughout the month to observe the start of the American Revolution on April 19, 1775. In the forecast, still mild, still windy today. Tonight, clouds gradually clearing about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunny skies. Temperatures only in the upper 40s. 51 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Let's go now to Tennessee, where the last two weeks have seen the following cascade of events. A shooting at an elementary school in Nashville that killed three children and three adults. Then came protests, ordinary people in the streets outside the state capitol calling for stronger gun control laws. Then came protests inside the capitol, Democratic lawmakers on the House floor calling for the same. Two of those lawmakers were expelled yesterday from the Republican-controlled House. We wanted to understand why. So we have called Jody Barrett. He's part of the Republican leadership, and we reached him in his hometown, Dixon, Tennessee. Representative Barrett, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Why expel these two lawmakers? Well, there's these three individuals breached decorum and House rules, and, and I think even one of the representatives called it occupied the House of Representatives by taking over the floor of the House during session with a bullhorn and leading the gallery in chants and cheers with a large protesting group outside of the chamber doors as well. And so there was all of the expulsion proceedings that took place yesterday was in response to those actions by so they're being out of order is what you're saying that's correct just to push you on that a little bit your your colleague the house speaker uh cameron sexton also a republican i heard him compare the protest to the january 6th insurrection and i was thinking on january 6 2021 thousands of people broke into the u.s capitol caused a number of deaths ransacked offices and tried to overturn a democratic election there in tennessee we had three lawmakers who you're saying spoke out of turn is it comparable really well i think it's a little bit simplifying things to say that three lawmakers spoke out of turn taking into account the totality of the circumstances of the day with protesters that were being very loud and agitated and these three individuals in particular going in and out of the chamber to talk directly to the protesters and gas them up during the day in the totality of the circumstances it is comparable or at least can be compared to january 6th in that both efforts but again were made people to, died on january 6th i understand that but if you boil it down to what actually happened both incidents were an attempt to interrupt a governmental activity or proceeding 
We had one of the two representatives who was ousted on NPR this morning. This was the now former Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones. He says that when he and others tried to raise the issue of gun safety on the House floor, that the Speaker refused to let them be heard. And I want to let you listen to what he told us. Anytime we brought it up, our microphones were cut off. We were ruled out of order. And so we did not have even a venue to voice the grievances of our community. And so we had no other choice but to do something out of the ordinary. Representative Barrett respond to that. This is Jones and other Democrats saying they had no choice. They didn't have any other way to speak. Were they denied any other way to speak? Well, the fact that Mr. Jones leaves out in that comment is that the session was actually started with the Democratic caucus led by Representative Bob Freeman, who represents the district that Covenant School is in. This is the school where the shooting was. Go on. Yeah, opening the, the session with a statement about the shooting and about gun violence. It was already addressed and covered. The time period that they were trying to make these comments was during a portion of the session that we call welcoming and honoring, which is limited to simply welcoming people that are in the gallery mm-hmm. or honoring folks that may have passed or something along those lines. And so it was out of order for them to try to make political statements during that time period. A lot of people, as you'll know, have been pointing out that the two ousted lawmakers, Mr. Jones and Justin Pearson, are both black, that the only Democrat who survived last night's vote was Gloria Johnson, who is white. Was race a factor here? Well, no, and I am a member who voted for the expulsion of the two younger gentlemen and did not vote for the expulsion of Ms. Johnson, and it had absolutely nothing to do with race. But you did not vote to expel, as you say, Representative Johnson. Why not? What was the difference? Well, I'm an attorney, and Ms. Johnson was the only representative that showed up with legal counsel, and their legal counsel made an opening statement pointing out deficiencies in the resolution that had been filed that we were voting on. And once those deficiencies were pointed out, in my view as an attorney, then it was incumbent upon the debate to present evidence to correct that and to establish clearly what it was that Ms. Johnson did to rise to the level of expulsion. I just don't think that we established that during the debate. On the substance, The backdrop, again, is this mass shooting in Nashville. Six people killed last week at an elementary school. What is the legislature doing to address this? Well, ironically, yesterday, before any of this mess started, we passed three different pieces of legislation at the very beginning of the session, one of which being a large school security package that allows the state of Tennessee to provide funding to every private and public school in the state to have an SRO officer placed in the school. And sorry, what's an SRO officer? A student resource officer. It's a law enforcement officer that serves in the school during the school day. To the thousands of people who've been out on the streets outside the Capitol, students, parents, teachers, demanding restrictions to firearms, especially military-style weapons, I don't know that an SRO is going to satisfy them. To them, you say what? Well, to them, I say that there are certain things that we can do in the short term, and then there are things that we will have to look at in the long term. This is clearly not an issue that has been created overnight, and it's not an issue that will be resolved overnight. Coming to the House floor as a member of the House of Representatives and 
demanding immediate action or change, these three individuals know that that's not how legislation gets passed. You know, for them to say that the legislature is not doing anything about it and not addressing the issue is just simply not true. Uh, it's Jody Barrett, a Republican and a representative in the Tennessee State House. Thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas today responded to a report by ProPublica about his failure to disclose lavish trips paid for by a Republican megadona, Harlan Crow. In a written statement today, uh, Thomas said that when he first came to the court, he, quote, was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable, unquote. Joining us now to discuss all this is NPR's legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi there. So these allegations all involve uh, Justice Thomas's 25-year friendship with real estate magnate Harlan Crow, who has contributed millions of dollars to conservative causes aimed in particular at moving the courts to the right. Uh, what can you tell us about this friendship? Well, there have been over the years multiple disclosures about gifts to Thomas and a couple of private trips paid for by Crow. But this week's ProPublica report is by far the most comprehensive. And it's one more blow to a court buffeted by controversy over everything from the leak of the court's abortion decision to its apparent inability to write an ethics code for itself. And these are just a few highlights of the ProPublica report. In June 2019, the Thomases flew on Crow's private jet to Indonesia for nine days of island hopping on the billionaire's yacht. That sort of trip would have cost Thomas more than a million dollars if he had paid for it. Every summer, the Thomas, Thomas now acknowledges that he spends about a week at Camp Topridge and Crow's, which is Crow's plush private resort in the Adirondacks. And there he hobnots hobnobs not just with Crow and his wife, but other Crow friends, big corporate leaders and conservative activists and influencers. The ProPublica report used Federal Aviation Administration records to show that Thomas repeatedly had flown on Crow's private jet for other occasions, for instance, to speak at the unveiling in New York of a huge statue of the justice's beloved eighth-grade teacher. There he publicly thanked the donors who paid for the statue, Harlan Crow, and his wife, Kathy. Uh, Nina, was all of this legal? I spoke to Stephen Gillers, the author of the leading judicial ethics text about this, and he said that while this is arguably legal, the key word is arguably. Mm. The code of judicial ethics that applies to all federal judges has rules that require reporting of all gifts and travel paid for by others. But until last month, those rules had an exception for the private travel and hospitality paid for by a personal friend. And Thomas, in his statement today, says that when he got to the Supreme Court, he, quote, sought guidance about the rules from fellow justices and others and was told that he didn't have to report personal hospitality. So there's your loophole. Now, the Ju Judicial Conference of the United States has just changed those rules this year to clarify the judges may not escape reporting travel that's paid for by someone else, anyone else. Even, a pers even personal hospitality at a private estate must be reported if the property is not owned personally by the friend extending the hospitality. And in this case, the Crow Estate, for instance, is owned by one of the billionaire's businesses, according to ProPublica. And Thomas said today that he'll comply with the new rules. 
I've been speaking with NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thanks so much. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the director of the Maryland chapter of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests speaks about the new report on decades long sex abuse in the Baltimore Diocese. And a little bit later, Elon Musk said Twitter's recent labeling of NPR as state affiliated media may not have been accurate. We'll hear about a series of email exchanges that offer a glimpse into the billionaire's thought process. These stories and much more coming up. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com, member FDIC. In business news, Wall Street was closed today for the Good Friday holiday. U.S. attorney from Massachusetts is accusing a Malden Shade and Awning Company of delaying reporting product defects. Rachel Rollins has filed a complaint that says Sunsetter failed to immediately disclose to federal regulators a problem in its retractable awning covers. Rollins says the defect could cause injury or death. Sunsetter denies the charges and said it promptly notified the Consumer Product Safety Commission when it became aware of the issue. This is WBUR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. And Exclusion U, a film about the controversy over Ivy League admissions and endowments. World premiere in Cambridge, April 17th. Registration at ExclusionLetterU.com. Overcast skies into the evening and overnight tonight. Strong winds out there. There's a red flag warning for most of Massachusetts in effect, meaning the winds and low humidity are making for a higher risk of brush fires. There have already been two reported today, one in Weston, another one in Burlington. Tonight's lows should be around 30 degrees. Saturday and Sunday should be pretty beautiful. Mostly sunny skies for the holiday weekend. Colder, though, should stay in the upper 40s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There's a water treaty that has survived three wars between neighbors, India and Pakistan. But decades after it was signed, that treaty is in trouble. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from the Pakistani city of Lahore. Abu Zarmado sits by the Ravi River as it crosses Lahore. He reads a poem to his beloved. Mado is an environmental activist and his beloved is the Ravi, a river that springs from the Himalayas of northern India and crosses into Pakistan. Ships used to sail the Ravi. Saints lived by the banks, part of a South Asian tradition of river worship. A tradition Mado embraces. Ravi or river is a living entity. She's a mother. She's also a god. But the river flowing past Mado is not the Ravi of history. It's now a narrow, dirty ribbon of water. The black water is just flowing. Activists say it's a treaty killing the Ravi. The Indus Water Treaty. It divides six rivers that traverse India and Pakistan, and India uses the Ravi for agriculture, so just a trickle makes its way to Pakistan now. Pakistani environmental lawyer Rafay Alam says, to understand this treaty, you have to know South Asia's brutal history. The treaty was, in some ways, the unfinished business of partition. Partition is shorthand here for the events of 75 years ago when the British divided South Asia into Hindu-dominated India and Muslim-dominated Pakistan. That triggered brutal sectarian violence and millions fled across that new border. Muslims to Pakistan, Hindus and Sikhs to India. Partition started the conversation on how that water was going to be divided. He says the Indus River Treaty is unique compared to all other water agreements in the world because it divides water rather than shares it. Environmentalists say the treaty is a disaster because each side can use the rivers they're allocated the way they like, with dams and canals to siphon off water, so the rivers don't flow naturally anymore. But the treaty also prevented conflict over water, and it's held despite constant tensions between Pakistan and India. Shikhar Gupta is the editor-in-chief of the Indian newspaper The Print, this is a recording of Gupta discussing the treaty in a news show. In fact, the treaty has been honoured by both sides, even during the wars. But over the past few years, mistrust has eroded the treaty. It began when India started building hydroelectric schemes on rivers allocated to Pakistan. The treaty allows India to do that, as long as it doesn't store the water. But Pakistan fears India will use those schemes to interrupt the flow of river water into Pakistan. And India has played on those fears. Like in 2016, when militants killed 18 Indian soldiers, India accused Pakistan of dispatching those terrorists, and newsreaders began breathlessly suggesting India would tear up the water treaty. They cited Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi as saying blood and water couldn't flow together. At that time, India planned to build a hydroelectric plant on one river that's meant to flow into Pakistan, and it was about to finish building a separate hydroelectric scheme on another. I'm standing on the banks of that river as it flows into Pakistan. It's called the Jhelum. It's rushing, it's wild. It also looks very gentle. 
And Pakistan says this river has less water in it than it's meant to because of that Indian hydroelectric plant. So Pakistan appealed to the World Bank. It acts as a third party to the treaty and it asked the bank to hold court to see whether India's hydroelectric schemes contravene the treaty. This frustrated India because Pakistan has done this again and again. After a back and forth, the World Bank said, let's try mediation. This is Gupta again, the editor-in-chief of The Print. But once again, both countries kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And as they kept fighting, 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 at one point, the World Bank said, all right. The bank gave up. To please Pakistan, it resumed the court process. To please India, it allowed an expert to look at the dam. The bank tells NPR it allowed both processes at once because years of stalemate was a risk to the treaty's survival. But there are problems. First, India boycotted the court. Then... India has informed Pakistan of its intention to amend the Indus Watch Treaty. On January 25, India informed Pakistan that it wanted to modify the treaty. Indian media suggested it was to make the two countries negotiate directly without the World Bank. But Pakistan wants a third party. It's the weaker country. It's on the brink of default. It's mired in political chaos. Meanwhile, India is the world's fifth largest economy. Daniel Haynes is an expert on South Asian water politics. From a Pakistani point of view, it might look as though India at this moment is trying to use its growing strength to take out third parties from the dispute resolution process, which Pakistan has traditionally seen as a guard against the potentially greater power of its upstream neighbour. India has given Pakistan 90 days to respond to its notice. And it has. But neither Indian nor Pakistani officials offered any more detail. So it's not clear what happens next. The concern is... It could contribute to an overall deterioration of relations, which could be dangerous. Meanwhile, there's a far more existential threat at play, and it's one the treaty doesn't even deal with. Those six rivers divided between India and Pakistan are fed by glaciers in the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush. And those glaciers are under severe threat of climate change. That's Rafay Alam, the environmental lawyer. Those glaciers are melting. Around a third of them are expected to disappear at 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming. But the UN's latest climate change report says warming is expected to exceed 5 degrees by the end of the century. And that means no water in the rivers. Actually, what will happen is first you'll have lots of flooding and then there won't be any water. That doesn't really threaten the treaty as much as it threatens the region. A region where nearly 2 billion people rely in some way on those rivers. Back at the Ravi, Madhu, that environmental activist, takes us to see a river shrine on the Indus. He tells me he wishes the Indus Water Treaty would unravel. It's not a treaty, it's the death of river and people of river. He wants a new treaty, written by the rivers themselves. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Lahore. Earlier this week, Wisconsin voters made history by flipping control of the state Supreme Court in favor of liberal justices. This means a 19th century law outlawing abortion in Wisconsin could soon change. Doctors across the state, we've all been afraid to dream that this could really happen and that we could be headed in the right direction again. I burst into tears. <laughs> it was, it, wow, just wow. 
hear one OBGYN's reaction to what may be ahead for reproductive rights in her state on our daily podcast, Consider This, wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in sports. The Celtics host the Toronto Raptors at the Garden tonight. Tip-off is at 7.30. Celts will be without Jalen Brown, who's got a finger laceration. And it's a day off for the Red Sox and Tigers. This is the Sox's first road trip of their regular season. They resume the series tomorrow, finished it up on Sunday. The Sox won the first game of the series. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big, big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our spring fundraiser. You put us over the top and you helped fuel WBUR. How lucky we are to have you in our lives. If you didn't get a chance to give and you still want to, go to WBUR.org and click on the Donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Vice President Kamala Harris is meeting in Nashville today with two black lawmakers who were ousted from the Tennessee state legislature after they participated in a protest demanding stricter gun laws. Representative Sam McKenzie is hopeful the two will be back. I have every confidence that their uh, counties and metropolitan areas are going to send them back. They're going to bring them back here. The demonstration was held after a school shooting in Nashville that killed three nine-year-old children as well as three adults. Top-secret Pentagon documents about the war in Ukraine have been published on at least two social media sites. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Pentagon is trying to determine how the material was leaked or stolen. The classified documents were posted on Twitter and Telegram. They include maps of Ukraine and charts on where troops are concentrated and what kinds of weapons are available to them. The Pentagon says it's investigating. It acknowledges the documents are real, but says some details have been altered. Officials haven't provided specifics, but one chart puts the Russian death toll at around 17,000. The actual figure is believed to be much higher. The papers do not reveal Ukrainian battle plans for a widely expected offensive this spring. Still, they do mention combat brigades that Ukraine is assembling and when they should be ready to fight. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Israeli authorities say a car rammed into a crowd in Tel Aviv today, killing one person and injuring several others. In a separate incident, two sisters were killed when their car was shot at in the West Bank. The violence comes at a time of heightened tensions in the region. Jews, Muslims and Christians are all marking major holidays. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the police to mobilize all reserve units. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullen. Space Day College in Boston has changed leadership in the midst of a tumultuous time for the school. We learned today the interim president, Jeffrey Mason, resigned Monday. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that leaves a new acting president in charge of a fragile transition. 
In an email sent this week, Bay State's leaders confirmed that Chief Financial Officer Kevin Derivan will take over as acting president. The for-profit college is set to lose its accreditation at the end of August, and dozens of students are still worried about what comes next. In their email, college leadership promised multiple transfer options for students not set to graduate. They also said Derivan's goals will be to sustain high-quality education through Bay State's likely closure this summer, to seek potential partnerships with institutions who might want to absorb parts of the college, and to help current Bay State staff find new work elsewhere. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The city of Boston's preparing to honor prominent black activist and former state lawmaker Mel King. Mayor Wu's office said today that the mayor will declare Tuesday a day of remembrance. That's the day of King's funeral. King died last week at the age of 94. Tributes will include condolence book signings, city hall flags set at half-staff, and buildings lit up in rainbow colors to honor King's work as the founder of the Rainbow Coalition political party. A week of anti-violence workshops is wrapped up today in Roxbury with a commitment from the city to coordinate violence prevention and intervention efforts. The meeting were run by the city and the University of Maryland Center for the Study of Pract- and Practice of Violence Reduction. Anti-violence activist Donnell Singleton says a series of community meetings planned for this year will help the black community recover from a history of trauma. We're still trying to heal from busing. We're still trying to heal from the crack epidemic. We're still trying to heal from not being able to afford oftentimes to live in our city. The so-called healing tour will provide residents with mental health counseling and resources to improve quality of life. A spring tradition in Boston is about to resume. Today, the city announced the swan boats will return to the Boston Public Garden Lagoon on Boston Marathon weekend. That's next weekend. This will be the 146th season for the paddle boats designed to look like swans. As a tradition, the mayor of Boston will host the first ride of the season. Again, that's next Saturday, the 15th. It's now 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. In the forecast, it was nice to wake up to the sunshine earlier today, but now it's all about the clouds. Overcast skies continuing tonight. Things should clear out by morning. Still windy, lows about 30 degrees. The holiday weekend's looking pretty beautiful and cool. Sunny skies tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures should top out just below 50 degrees. It is 50 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Earlier this week, the Maryland Attorney General released a new report documenting the pervasive history of sex abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And a warning that my conversation for the next four minutes or so will include some discussion of those findings. Investigators found more than 600 children were abused by more than 150 Catholic priests in the Baltimore Archdiocese over the last 80 years. 
We're joined now by David Lorenz. He is the director of the Maryland chapter of SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Uh, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a really, really hard report to read. Um, I had to step away from it. Uh, yeah. I wonder, as you were reading through it, uh, uh, what it did for you, how you were feeling. Yeah, I had the same reaction. I, I, I started reading it and then had to stop. And I will hopefully get through the whole thing, but I'm not sure that I ever will. What have you been hearing from uh, from victims? The response is across the board. It's it's pretty emotional, as you can imagine. There's this really sense of relief and validation that finally someone believes this, and it's a, it, you know it's a law enforcement, it's a justice department, but at the same time, there's this unbelievable sense of sorrow. We belong to a club. We don't want anyone else to join. Yeah. But we just found out there's 600 more, and and it's sad. It's it's sad. I was talking to one of the survivors today, and she said, I just broke down and cried. So you've got these two conflicting emotions at either end, you know, vindication and utter sadness at the same time. A history of sex abuse by the Catholic Church is something that has been established in many parts of the country. Um, But I have to say that, you know, even so, some of the details in this report I found to be so, so shocking, so disturbing. Was it, were the details more severe than what even you have seen in other parts of the country? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's sadomasochism in here, but I've seen that in the Pennsylvania grand jury report and the Philadelphia grand jury. What you just said was, was an interesting phrase, and I use that today, is child sexual abuse should make us all cringe, right? And yet somehow you have to modify it to explain that this is even worse than that. And in, and in the church, they didn't do anything about it. They knew this was happening and did nothing about it. This report names more than 150 priests. Uh, Ten of their names are redacted, though, because they're alive and have the right to ask a court not to release their names. Uh, The attorney general has also said no one will be charged. Uh, What do you want to see? I would certainly love to see them um, prosecuted. I do think there is no reason why the diocese can't publish the names. All this information came from the church. They know those names, and they can publish them. Well, Baltimore's Archbishop, William Laurie, issued a response to the report, uh, calling the findings that are detailed reprehensible. But he also pledged not to ignore them and noted also that the church is a different place now, that abusers are not tolerated today. It sounds like um, you were not satisfied by that response. Not not in the least. Um, He is still fighting the legislation that will be signed this coming Tuesday to remove the statute of limitations for civil cases against child abusers and their enablers. So I, I don't really see that things have changed. I see that tactics have changed a little bit, but in fact, actions speak louder than words. David Lorenz is director of the Maryland chapter of SNAP, the survivor's network of those abused by priests. Uh, Thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm I'm happy to keep this story going. And a note, the Baltimore Archdiocese has not yet responded to NPR's request for comment. Yesterday, the Tennessee state legislature voted to expel two black members. The Republican majority accused them of bringing, quote, dishonor and disorder to the House of Representatives when they led a gun control protest. It was fraught and racially loaded. So much so that Vice President Kamala Harris is in Tennessee to meet with the two ousted members. NPR's Sandia Dirks joins us now to talk about what this story reveals about race and democracy. Hi, Sandia. Hi, Adrian. Sanjay, there were uh, three representatives under threat of expulsion, but one of them was spared. 
That's right. So Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson were expelled, while Representative Gloria Johnson survived by one vote. Here she is on CNN. Why were those two expelled and you weren't? Well, I think it's pretty clear I'm a six-year-old white woman, and they are two young black men. Representative Johnson also pointed out that there was a way, a tone in which both young black men were talked to. I want to play you one example of this. Here's Representative Andrew Farmer. Just because you don't get your way, you can't come to the well, bring your friends, and throw a temper tantrum with an adolescent bullhorn. So Farmer was visibly angry while he spoke. And here's the response of Justin Pearson. Now, you all heard that. How many of you want to be spoken to that way? I want to point out it's not the first time that Pearson has been chastised by a white Republican representative. He was also told it wasn't appropriate for him to wear a dashiki underneath a suit jacket. Uh, Sandhya, what can you tell us about the uh, constituents that these two men represent? So Justin Pearson's district uh, is about 61 per- percent black, and that's in Memphis. Justin Jones in Nashville, his district is about 30 percent black and 24 percent Hispanic. These people are now unrepresented, right, because of a decision by an almost entirely white Republican supermajority. And that supermajority isn't even really reflective of Tennessee. Voting rights activists say, like many states, the map has been gerrymandered by Republicans to dilute the black and brown vote. Uh, There was another moment in yesterday's proceedings that was explicitly about race, uh, but in a different way. Uh, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was when an Indian-American representative, Representative Sabi Kumar, spoke directly to Representative Justin Jones. Here's what he said. You look at everything through the lens of race. Those are your experiences, and that's perfectly understandable. But sincerely, after becoming elected, you should be celebrating. You really should be. You should join the House, become one of us. It's this really striking moment. Kumar is suggesting that if you play by the rules and gain proximity to power, you'll be accepted. But Jones doesn't buy it. This is simulate. That's very disappointing to to hear, my friend. And And what I told you was what you just exhibited as the only member of their caucus who is not of the Caucasian persuasion, I said that you put a brown face on white supremacy. Kumar added that he'd never heard a racial slur used in America, but Jones pointed out that earlier this year, a white Republican suggested bringing back lynching for the death penalty. Lynching was used to murder and terrorize black people. I've been speaking with NPR's Sandia Dirks. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks, Adrian. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Under Elon Musk, Twitter has at times been a hostile place for journalists. Musk suspended journalists who report on him. He removed the New York Times verified blue check, and now he is targeting NPR. Musk has falsely labeled NPR's Twitter account as, quote, U.S. state-affiliated media. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen has been communicating with Musk about why he decided to do this. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Mary Louise. I am looking, and nearly 9 million people follow NPR's main Twitter account. What exactly has Musk done here by attaching this false label? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Musk slapped this state-affiliated media label on NPR's main Twitter account. And, I mean, first of all, we should say it was a real shock to both NPR, all of us, and, you know, outside media watchers. It's a label that Twitter has historically only applied to government-controlled media outlets in places like China and Russia, you know, publications where government influences what is published. And with the label, Mayor Louise, every single tweet sent out from the account has a disclaimer notifying people that Basically, what you're seeing might be propaganda. The label effectively, you know, serves to delegitimize and and undercut the credibility of a news organization. Yeah, our news organization. So being a journalist, you had questions. You emailed Musk. He wrote back. What did he say? Yeah, so with Elon Musk, it's always a little unpredictable. I've emailed him many times before and have heard nothing. This time I was pretty persistent and kept asking, asking, asking. Then I sent a series of question marks, and to my surprise, he started replying. And we had quite the exchange over the last couple days. He, you know, usually fires off these short sort of like curt one-sentence replies. They come in at all hours. I got the last one at 10.53 p.m. last night. And looking over all of them, my big takeaway is, you know, his thinking on this label has just been all over the place. (laughs) All over the place. Why do you say that? Well, he didn't seem to understand the difference between public media and state-controlled media. He asked me at one point, quote, what's the breakdown of NPR's annual funding? And he asked, who appoints leadership at NPR? These are questions you can get by Googling, but for some reason he wanted to ask me. Um, And also, let's take a moment and, and pause on these questions, Mary Louise, because he made a major policy decision policy decision, right? And after doing so, he is just now asking for the basic facts. This is not exactly how most CEOs in America operate. Anyway, I answered his questions. Uh, About 1% of NPR's budget is from federal grants, and an independent board appoints NPR's CEO who picks leadership. Indeed. Um, For those people who are not glued to Twitter all day, uh, like non-journalists, why does all this matter, Bobby? Yeah, you know, if you're on Twitter, you know there are sort of two worlds on there. One is full of jokes and memes and people kind of goofing off. And the other one is serious. It's where people learn about natural disasters. It's where people follow the outcomes of elections. It's where news breaks that can move markets and trigger investigations. In a sense, this side of Twitter is kind of woven into how we communicate as a country. And having Musk suspending journalists or labeling news organizations as propaganda outlets like he did with NPR just makes the whole platform chaotic. It makes it less reliable place to get information. And Mary Louise, I know many journalists, both in NPR and at other organizations, who are looking at this platform and saying, do we really want to be here anymore? Maybe we should divorce ourselves from this because it's not reliable, it's unpredictable, and more and more. It's just a place where toxic and misleading material is just flying around like crazy. Meanwhile, that state-affiliated media label is still attached to NPR's account, so I hope you keep emailing. Bobby Allen, thanks very much. Thanks, Mary Louise.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Events get underway this weekend to commemorate the 248th anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Tomorrow afternoon, the Minuteman National Historical Park in Lexington will hold a ceremony commemorating the capture of Paul Revere by British, British soldiers. The park is hosting programs to observe the start of the American Revolution on April 19, 1775. This year, the Patriots' Day state holiday will be Monday, April 17th. Cloudy skies overnight tonight. Strong winds out there still. There is a red flag warning for most of Massachusetts, meaning the winds and low humidity are making for a higher risk of brush fires. There have already been two reported, one in Weston, another in Burlington. Tonight's lows should be around 30. Saturday and Sunday should be lovely. Mostly sunny, but colder should stay in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Their employment lawyers have your work cut out for them. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Populism is a defining political current in the United States. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. And around the world. Populism unifies the people by negativity. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Listen to On Point, Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. Our week-long exploration begins Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. There's a movie coming out today with a somewhat self-explanatory title, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. To be clear, this movie does not actually instruct you how to explode petroleum infrastructure. It's a heist film. Just instead of robbing a bank or stealing a famous painting, eight people come together to try to blow up a pipeline. It's a movie where people are like moving bombs around for, you know, a good a good 45 minutes. I think people come out feeling like their nerves have been a bit a bit jangled, but in a good way. That's director Daniel Goldhaber. He and his collaborators were inspired by a provocative book of the same title by an activist and academic named Andreas Malm. His book is an argument for sabotage, for strategic property destruction to force a halt to fossil fuel extraction, because the argument is that more peaceful climate activism isn't working. Whereas the movie is a suspense film about a fictional pipeline. We built the pipeline. Ah. It was made of cardboard. So it wasn't really <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> but that's so cool. Ariella Barrer helped write and produce the movie with Daniel Goldhaber, and she stars as one of the eight protagonists. When we all sat down to talk, I asked how they developed the characters for a heist film about a drastic environmental protest. From the beginning, I think that we wanted a movie that felt like it could capture a cross-section of the different kinds of people who are experiencing climate change firsthand. So there was kind of a research process that was always kind of predicated on meeting with people and asking them, you know, hey, we're thinking about making a movie that engages in this subject matter and in this particular way. It's a heist film. It's an entertaining movie. What do you think that movie should be? How do you feel like we should be representing the issue of climate change? And, you know, what are your greatest fears of this project? And would kind of take that in to the process very early in development before we had any characters, before we even had a story. You know, Ariella was the one who kind of, you know, put those pieces together. And we kind of said, you know, these are the eight characters that I think feel like they kind of capture those conversations we've had at their best. The movie was inspired by a book, uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which advocates for violent property destruction uh, as a tactic 
your movie is not a direct adaptation and doesn't really make that argument. Uh, it's more of an action film, like you said. It's a heist film. Um, and the tension really centers around you know, this cast of characters' mission to blow up this pipeline without getting caught. But uh, Ariella, did you want people to grapple with sort of the deeper moral question that inspired it, you know, which is what is the right way to protest? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You don't adapt a book like that without taking those questions and those arguments very seriously. And I think for me personally in the writing process, I was grappling with it myself and was writing the sort of tension between two of the main characters, Sochi and Alicia, that is very much that question. We have a right to defend ourselves. We could set a new legal precedent. And if we get off, more people follow, more bombs happen, fossil fuel gets priced out in the market. People are out there doing the work and you just want to come in and say This flashy is pure ego. I would also take issue kind of initially with the way you characterize the argumentation of the book, that it's calling for violent property destruction. I think that one of the things the movie is grappling with is this question of whether or not the destruction of fossil fuel infrastructure is violence. For the eight characters that the movie follows, this is an act of self-defense. We don't call the existence of a fossil fuel plant, of, of a fossil fuel refinery, a violent piece of property, but that is nevertheless a piece of property that creates mass death and mass destruction. And so I think that the one of the fundamental things that we are interrogating in the film through the eyes and the experiences of our characters is this fundamental question of what is that line? Well, so when we initially picked up this book, uh, we had the conversation pretty point blank of, is this going to be a piece of propaganda? Is this going to be something that we are telling people to do that we endorse, etc.? And I was very much the one from the beginning that hesitated a lot with that. And I wanted to explore kind of the consequences of an action like this as well, because this would directly affect people in the real world. And when we brought this up to Andreas, he completely agreed that we should incorporate criticisms. He started sending us criticisms of his own book, Mm. uh, just being like, this one's great, actually, you should look into this. Um, And so with those criticisms and with sort of the conversations we were having about whether or not uh, it would be responsible to completely endorse an action like this or to completely do this or how we would feel if something like this actually happened tomorrow, that just kind of became what the characters were discussing and going through. And we were all writing these characters from such a personal place that these conversations became completely organic to the characters and I think leaves the movie with a much richer perspective than had we just decided to do the propaganda piece. Were you surprised that Andres Malm, the author of the book, uh, was so willing to engage with uh, the criticism and actually have it represented in your movie? I don't think you write a manifesto and not expect people to take issue with it. And I think that Andreas is is somebody who is extremely bright and extremely aware of the way that he is operating in the field of, you know, in the case of the book, it's it's a leftist text. It, it It's for a particular kind of audience that engages with these political ideas in a particular way. And this is a movie that's very different. This is a pop movie. This is something that is intended for a mainstream audience. And this is a piece of entertainment. And so our responsibilities and the way that we are, you know, the way that we need to engage in political discourse in the film is 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 also different. And that's the goal of the film, writ large is not just to make a super fun, you know, entertaining movie, but to also hopefully provoke a conversation around this question of what kind of tactics are necessary and defensible to prevent a climate apocalypse. There's a scene uh, in the movie where one of the characters is working on a documentary film about the pipeline. Okay, so take me back to that moment. And sort of comes to this understanding as he's doing that, that making a film uh, isn't really going to do much other than bring 
more emotional pain to the people he's interviewing. I mean, this is our lives. We lost our home. Because it's not going to stop the pipeline, you know. Uh, have you guys thought about that as, as, as filmmakers? That was very much a, a sort of reflection of our position in this larger movement, what making this movie would mean to people and and also sort of a criticism of the sort of ego and self-importance that goes into doing something like this. Uh, both that scene and the character of Sochi being played by me as the author were, were very much our own criticisms and reflections of our roles of this. And my, I got my start in film working on climate documentary. There's also this specific issue when it comes to how documentarians engage with their subjects um, that I also think that we wanted to reflect on, especially this question of, of activist filmmaking and activist documentary making and, and wanting to recognize and acknowledge to the audience that we are just aware of the shortcomings of this just being a movie and not a piece of activism. The movie is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Director Daniel Goldhaber and writer and producer Ariella Barrere. Thanks for joining me. Thank you Thank so you. much. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy skies, strong winds out there right now. Tonight, lows should be around 30 degrees. Saturday and Sunday should be beautiful, mostly sunny skies, but colder should stay in the upper 40s. WBUR's two-day podcast festival for kids returns to City Space on April 15th and 16th. Join us for performances from Circle Round and Friends. Tickets and details are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. See the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard. Gardenmuseum.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The jobs report for last month signaled that the Federal Reserve's efforts to curb inflation are working. The unemployment rate also declined slightly to 3.5%, a sign the labor market as a whole remains robust despite high-profile layoffs in certain industries. Today is Friday, April 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Also ahead, two months after the deadly earthquakes in southern Turkey, millions of survivors are coping with the mental health toll of the disaster. Dartmouth College researchers link climate change to a shift in the game of baseball. And on the TV sitcom Abbott Elementary, the state of disrepair in public school buildings is a common theme, and real-life teachers say they can relate. I got locked in my room the other day because my doorknob's been busted for twice. Once my class was locked in it. Coming up, Philadelphia teachers shared their thoughts on the show. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Vice President Harris is scheduled to be in Nashville tonight, a day after the Republican-led state legislature expelled two black Democratic lawmakers for taking part in gun control protests on the House floor last week. A third Democratic lawmaker who's white was not expelled. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports President Biden calls the expulsions shocking. Vice President Harris is using her meeting with lawmakers to highlight the administration's push for stricter gun control measures. President Biden reiterated his calls for tougher gun laws in the aftermath of the school shooting in Nashville that left six people dead, including three children. The mass shooting prompted demonstrations at the State House in Nashville this week. Three Democratic lawmakers interrupted a floor session with a megaphone, leading protesters in calls for common-sense gun laws. In a statement, the White House once again called on Congress to ban assault-style weapons and pass other gun safety reforms, adding that state officials must do the same. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas says he wasn't required to disclose the many trips he and his wife took that were paid for by a Republican megadonor, saying he was advised that, quote, this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. ProPublica reported Thursday about the trips, including cruises and private flights that Thomas and his wife Ginny took that were paid for by Harlan Crow. Thomas didn't report them as part of his annual financial disclosure. According to that report, justices must file annual financial disclosure reports, but there are exemptions from hospitality from friends. Israeli police say a driver rammed into a crowd near the beach in Tel Aviv, killing at least one person and wounding several others before being shot. It's the latest in a series of attacks during a sensitive period of Christian, Muslim and Jewish holy days. And here's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Israeli media reported the driver was a Palestinian. Police say he hit foreign tourists walking on a beachside promenade in Tel Aviv and killed a man from Italy. They say the driver then reached for a weapon and police and city officials shot him to death. After the attack, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered up extra police and military. Earlier in the day, a gunman shot at a car in the occupied West Bank, killing two young British-Israeli sisters and wounding their mother. The violence comes after Israeli police were filmed earlier in the week using batons to beat Palestinians inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Rocket fire from Gaza and Lebanon prompted Israeli retaliatory strikes. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Wall Street was closed today in observance of Good Friday, as were many markets across Europe. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Police have wrapped up a day-long search of some Revere wetlands in connection with the murder of a New Hampshire girl. Five-year-old Harmony Montgomery disappeared in 2019. Her remains have never been found. Her father, Adam Montgomery, is charged with second-degree murder. This afternoon, police from Manchester, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts state troopers searched areas along Lynn Marsh Road in Revere. Leaders of anti-violence groups in Boston say they're encouraged by the city's new effort to prevent gun violence. Today, the city and community groups concluded a week of workshops to consider paths forward. Minister Randy Mohammed of Mohammed Mosque No. 11 in Roxbury says for years his mosque has been training volunteers to work for peace in the community. He welcomes what Mayor Wu calls a holistic approach to alleviating violence. There's a commitment now to bring resources to those of us that have been doing this work, that are connected in the streets, that are working outside of the traditional organizations or tentacles of the city. Boston Mayor Wu says the city has the resources and expertise for a coordinated and sustained approach to make neighborhoods safer. Investigators have identified a UMass Dartmouth student who was struck and killed by a car on campus. Frank Petulo Jr. was a first-year bioengineering student. He was found on the roadway yesterday and later pronounced dead at a hospital. The driver of the vehicle has uh, involved has been identified. A stop and shop in Brockton will remain open. The Quincy-based grocery store chain reversed plans to close the location on North Montello Street. Over the winter time. the company said it planned to shut down the store because of a hike in rent. Stop and shop reversed the decision after talks with Brockton officials and the property owner. Mayor Robert Sullivan says the location is vital for residents of the city. Plans are underway to bring the first offshore salmon farm to New England waters. A New Hampshire company wants to put 40 submersible fish pens in the ocean about eight miles off the coast of Newburyport. Blue Water Fisheries wants to farm salmon and steelhead trout. Its plan still needs approval by several federal agencies. Opponents are concerned storms could damage the pens and allow non-native fish to escape and breed with the wild salmon. And the Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will be closed again this weekend for repairs. It will shut down at 11 tonight until 5 a.m. Monday. The closure is for a tunnel restoration project. The work began last spring and is expected to go into next year. In the forecast, still mild, still windy. Don't try cooking anything outdoors tonight because there have been brush fires already that have damaged homes in Weston and Burlington. Overnight tonight, clouds gradually move out. Clear skies for tomorrow. Sunny and chilly tomorrow Look for temperatures only in the upper 40s and then sunny and chilly again on Sunday. A nice day for an Easter parade, though. Temperatures again in the upper 40s. This is WBUR at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The high-flying U.S. job market lost a little altitude last month, but forecasters say there is still a chance for a soft landing. The Labor Department said today that employers added 236,000 jobs in March, fewer than the month before, but the unemployment rate remains low, in fact, very low, and unemployment among African-Americans dropped to its lowest rate on record. And Pierre Scott Horsley is here to explain all. Hey, Scott. 
Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, so we keep hearing all about layoffs, including, unfortunately, at NPR, um, but it seems like a lot of other employers are hiring. So what's going on here? Yeah, we are still seeing a lot of job growth, especially in service-oriented businesses like restaurants and entertainment. Even the tech sector, where a lot of those layoff announcements have come from, actually added a few thousand jobs on net last month. Overall, the pace of hiring was down from February, but University of Michigan economist Betsy Stevenson says this is a job market that is slowing down, not stalling out. This report is just about as good as it can be. It's slowing slightly and wage growth is slowing slightly, which is exactly what the Fed wants to see as they're trying to tap the brakes on the economy without crashing the car. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates in an effort to slow the economy and get inflation under control, Mm. but it's trying not to tip the economy into recession. That's the so-called soft landing you mentioned. Uh, From that perspective, this is an encouraging report. Uh, Wage gains, which the Fed's been watching closely, have eased in recent months, and that should take a little pressure off inflation. All right. Tell me more about the unemployment headline I mentioned. What's happening there? Yeah, the unemployment rate ticked down just a bit to 3.5%. That's encouraging because at the same time, we saw a big influx of new workers. Nearly half a million people came off the sidelines and joined the workforce in March. The African-American unemployment rate dropped all the way down to 5%, which is the lowest since the government started tracking it back in 1972. Now, that sample size is fairly small, so the numbers bounce up and down a lot. But Stevenson says there are other encouraging signs here. For example, the share of African-Americans who are in the workforce is now higher than it was before the pandemic, unlike the share of whites in the workforce, which is still not fully recovered. African-Americans just pour back into the labor market, and there's a lot of jobs out there. They're looking for them, and they're taking them. Uh, the Latino unemployment rate was also down last month to 4.6 percent. Hmm. All right. So that sounds like a, a fair bit of good news. Is there bad news in today's report? You definitely see the fallout from those rising interest rates in sensitive sectors like construction and manufacturing. Construction companies cut 9,000 jobs last month. Factories cut about 1,000. We've kind of been expecting that. Uh, A monthly survey of factory managers has shown declining orders for seven months in a row. Uh, And Tim Fiore, who conducts that survey, says managers had been keeping workers on the payroll in anticipation of a rapid rebound, but now they're not so sure. Companies appear to be much more willing to reduce their headcounts, which the only reason they would be wanting to do that is that they're not really sure about demand two to three to four to five months out. The question now is whether those factory job cuts last month will be limited to the manufacturing sector or if they're a signal of what's to come for the broader economy. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. NPR's Scott Horsley. The survivors of the huge earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria two months ago still tremble in fear at reminders of that night. More than 56,000 people died in the two countries. For the millions who experienced it but survived, shock and grief persist. NPR's Fatma Tanis went to one of the worst-hit cities in southern Turkey, Antakya, and has this report. (laughs) The parking lot of a stadium, one of the few standing large structures in Antakya, is now a vast tent camp for thousands of earthquake survivors. It's overseen by the Turkish government and aid organizations. Children play outside some big tents that are covered in their drawings and labeled psychosocial support as their mothers watch from a distance. One of them is 34-year-old Hafsa Bashar, who escaped with her children when their six-floor building collapsed during the earthquake, crushing many of their neighbors. 
They hopped over the balcony which had fallen on their car. The only things they could manage to grab were their two parakeets. Since then, she tells me, her young daughter has been unable to sleep at night, often waking up screaming. Bashar then started sending her kids to the therapy tent, where mental health professionals have volunteered to help children and families. I'm not sure how they did it exactly. They play some games with the children and talk to them. But my daughter is less panicked now. As we're chatting, a woman named Maida Hebele overhears us and approaches, two children in tow. She appears frazzled and at her wit's end with her kids. Her younger daughter, who's four, just won't stop crying, she says, going at times for four or five hours straight. She can feel it when the aftershocks happen. Even when the wind blows, she starts crying and we can't calm her down. She started to be extremely jealous of her siblings, too. Then there's her older daughter, who got briefly separated from her family the night of the quake and couldn't find them. Normally calm and well-behaved, the six-year-old girl will not leave her mother's side for a moment. Hebelit doesn't know what to do anymore. She has her own trauma and nightmares. They lost her home and several relatives. Her relationship with her husband has been suffering as a result, too. Hebelib hasn't heard about the mental health support. This camp is big and there's a lot going on. Hafsa Basharp, who has been sending her kids to therapy tents, tells her about the benefits she's seen after her kids worked with trained professionals. One of them is John. A psychologist who, like many others here, took an unpaid leave of absence from her job to volunteer in the quake zone. The earthquake disrupted millions of lives, and Ipek says people are still in shock, unable to process their anger or grief. She says right now they're treating kids in groups, but people here don't have the security and stability needed for one-on-one -on -one therapy. They're still focused on getting shelter, food, water, and hygiene. But Ipek is also on the lookout for any signs of dangerous behavior, like suicide or psychosis. They're trying to educate people as well, especially women and children, to help protect them against abuse, sexual or physical and domestic violence. The scale of this disaster is so large, Ipek says they're looking at years of mental health support needed, not only for survivors, but first responders, rescue teams, and aid workers who've been traumatized too. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Antakya, Turkey. Baseball season just started, and a new study says that home runs may be on the rise due to warming temperatures. Ari Daniel covered the basis for us. Eleven years ago, baseball commentator Tim McCarver said this about home runs. I think ultimately it will be proven that the air is thinner now. There have been climactic changes over the last 50 years in the world. And I think that's one of the reasons that balls are carrying much better now. He was widely mocked for making this statement on air. Christopher Callahan is a Cubs fan and a climate science grad student at Dartmouth College. He says McCarver's comment also generated articles that did some rough calculations. I had read some of those and said, hey, we could try and find this in the actual data. Callahan considered the number of home runs from more than 100,000 Major League Baseball games going back 60 years, combined with temperature data. Instead of saying, is it warm or cold? We say, is it unseasonably warm for that location at that time? 
a question that's got nothing to do with other things like what the bat's made of or whether players were doping. And then we say, well, are there unusually more home runs than there are normally? The answer, says Callahan, is yes. Dartmouth climate scientist Justin Mankin, who worked with Callahan, says it's due to warmer air being less dense than cooler air. So more space between the air molecules, and so a ball is just going to encounter less air resistance, and it's going to fly farther. I spoke with Michael Mann, who directs the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media, and wasn't involved in the research. He says there may be another factor at play, heat stress on pitchers who have to hurl the ball over and over. But a hitter that just has to get up there one and hit the ball and then they're done for a while. And so hitters have more of an advantage over pitchers. So on warmer than usual days, the thinking goes, they'd hit more home runs. But that's where a second data set steps up to the plate. That is a missile! And it's 2-0 Yankees! I know we're going to get the stats on this. That's one of the fastest home runs I've seen here at Yankee Stadium. That's from a Yankees home game against the Cubs last June. Within seconds, the exiting velocity of Giancarlo Stanton's homer appears on screen, almost 120 miles per hour, according to a tracking system called StatCast. Here's Christopher Callahan. This system of high-speed cameras. So we have the launch speed and launch angle of individual baseballs coming off the bat. And at that point, all the other factors, including pitcher fatigue, don't matter. You're just looking at the speed and angle of a ball the moment it's hit. Callahan compared over 200,000 StatCast measurements from a five-year span. And sure enough... We can say that the same ball leaving the same bat ends up being a home run more often in warm conditions. Probably due to lower air density, he says. And if things continue to heat up, by the year 2100, we're likely to see several hundred more home runs per baseball season. This work is in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. Marshall Shepard is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Georgia who wasn't involved in the research. He says if the finding holds up, it's got broader implications. It's more than just the novelty of more home runs. I think it does raise a caution flag about the health and safety of both players and fans at these games. Finding this connection between home runs and temperature was only possible because of the vast amounts of data the MLB collects, says Justin Mankin. And these kinds of impacts are lurking everywhere, if only we could measure them. Climate change, it is fundamentally going to restructure our lives and livelihoods and recreation and well-being. Nothing escapes its touch. Nothing. Not even a baseball sailing through a less resistant sky. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thank you for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace, the nutritional content of school lunches is under review. But if the current amount of salt and sugar gets slashed, will kids eat what's on the plate? If the kids aren't eating, then we have to cut labor, we have to cut costs, and, you know, that essentially would mean, you know, possibly letting some staff go, changing our menus to meet those cost standards. A cafeteria change-up coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Guides on buying and selling real estate in greater Boston, available at mraboston.com slash WBUR. 
Wall Street markets are closed for the Good Friday holiday today. Forbes magazine's list of billionaires is out. It includes 25 people from Massachusetts. The wealthiest person in the state, according to the magazine, is Abigail Johnson. Johnson is CEO of Fidelity Investments and is said to be worth $21.6 billion. Other local billionaires include Patriots owner Robert Kraft, New Balance chairman Jim Davis, and Moderna CEO Stefan Bensell. It's 20 past six. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. In the forecast, lots of clouds out there right now. They should stay the course overnight tonight. Should be down around 30 degrees overnight. Pretty gusty winds as well. And then for the holiday weekend, looking pretty beautiful but cool. Sunny skies tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures just below 50. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Last month, the banking system found itself in deep trouble. Three U.S. banks went under, including, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Reserve does have tools that are supposed to help banks in times like these. One of the oldest, most important tools is called the discount window. It's essentially a place where banks can go when they need a loan. Mary Childs of NPR's Planet Money is here to tell us a bit of the history behind the discount window. Hi, Mary. Hey, Adrian. Okay, so the discount window, what exactly is it? The discount window is actually part of the reason the Fed was created in the first place. In the early 1900s, there were all these bank runs, and one of America's richest guys, J. Pierpont Morgan, stepped in, organized a big bailout, and everyone was like, that seems like kind of a bad plan if our entire banking system just relies on the good graces of some rich guy. So in 1913, the Federal Reserve was born. And its most basic function is as the lender of last resort. If a bank is having a hard time, it could always come to the discount window, a literal window at the time, and it could get a loan from the Fed and live to lend another day. So it sounds like the discount window is basically a a bank for banks. (laughs) Uh, Tell me a little bit more about how that works. So when a bank needs extra money, it can go to the window and hand over what's called collateral, any valuable thing that the Fed can sell if that bank doesn't end up being good for the money. And the bank gets the loan from the Fed. And at first, it was actually cheaper to borrow from the Fed at this window than from basically anybody else. And as a result, banks were borrowing from the window all the time, too much, relying on it, which kind of annoyed the Fed. They wanted to be the lender of last resort, not first resort. It's not really how an independent, privately run banking system is supposed to work. Okay, so too many banks were relying on this discount window. uh, And so what did the Fed do to try to address that? They added some disincentives. They tried just telling the banks, hey, please stop, don't use it so much. And that Mm -hmm. didn't really work. So at one point, they made it more expensive than other places where banks could borrow. And they tried this other way that ended up being super effective. They said, Okay, you can borrow from the window, but you have to ask everybody else for a loan first. And only if everyone else says no, will we lend to you. And that requirement created a stigma. Here's Yesha Yadav, a professor at Vanderbilt University's law school. Banks are super reluctant to use a discount window. And sometimes they're willing to take the long way around to avoid being caught in this walk of shame. 
Okay, so Mary, did did banks then basically just stop uh, using the discount window? They tried, yeah. It was kind of a problem. They weren't using it when they needed it. So then the Fed had to go in the other direction and encourage banks to use it. They got rid of that requirement, and they workshopped a pretty brilliant hack, basically borrowed from high school. They got the cool kids to do it. Here's Yadev again. What happened was that to get folks to take the loan, they got the big banks to all borrow from the discount window to ease that sense of stigma and shame because it felt like the big banks are doing it, so can we. That's really funny. Peer pressure is so powerful. Peer pressure is so powerful, especially with the big cats. So in the 2020 recession sparked by the onset of COVID, the Fed encouraged the big banks to borrow from the discount window and then tell everybody that they'd done so. And that broke the stigma. It loosened up borrowing. And in our most recent bank freakout, banks used the window. In one week, bank borrowings from the discount window went from $5 billion to a record $153 billion. Wow. Okay. Uh, That was Mary Childs of NPR's Planet Money. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. The award-winning comedy Abbott Elementary is nearing the end of its second season. It's set in a fictional Philadelphia school, and it follows a plucky teacher who will stop at nothing to get her students what they need. I was called, I answered, and now I know, even with no help from the higher-ups and no money from the city, I can get this job done. Just how real is the show? WHYY's Aubrey Yuhas put that question to some real-life Philly teachers. Welcome! Nicole Wyglandowski, or Ms. Y, as her students call her, is a special education teacher at an elementary school in North Philadelphia. She's also an Abbott Elementary super fan and constantly compares herself to the show's characters, like Jacob, the corny history teacher. You know, before I taught here, I was in Zimbabwe. I was doing Teachers Without Borders. So this is very Jacob of me, but I taught abroad in Asia for a year after undergrad. Ms. Y watches the show every week and live tweets the whole thing. So when I decided to bring some Philly teachers together to talk about Abbott, she agreed to organize a watch party. Hey, Ms. D! An hour before the show starts, Ms. Y's teacher friends start to trickle in. Ms. D is my savior. There's wine and snacks, and while they nosh, the half-dozen teachers discuss the show. And one of its prominent themes, the state of school buildings. There's an episode where the show's protagonist, Janine, played by Philly native Quinta Brunson, tries to fix a flickering light. Oh, look at this. It was just a loose wire. And accidentally blows out the power in parts of the building. Maura McDade, a lawyer-turned-middle-school math teacher, says just like the building in Abbott, her school is plagued with issues. I got locked in my room the other day because my doorknob's been busted for (laughs) twice once my class was locked in it. The average Philly school is more than 70 years old. Most don't have central air conditioning and were built using lead and asbestos. Any other school district would have, you know, leveled this building and rebuilt new. (laughs) Philadelphia is the poorest of the country's 10 largest cities. And schools here have long suffered from chronic underfunding. Ms. Wine knows teachers who don't watch Abbott because it hits too close to home. But she likes the show because it's a comedy. And there's truth in every joke. I can't believe they're actually talking about this on TV. Like, other people are going to watch this. 
and I have to laugh because if you don't laugh, like you will cry. What it do, baby boobs? Ms. McDade's favorite character is the show's outrageously unqualified principal, Ava. When a student pees on Janine's rug, Ava comes up with the money for a new one. Y'all seeing this? But decides to spend it on something else. A plastic sign? Thank God for the school district because they gave us $3,000 and I had to spend all of it. Ms. McDade says even though most principals aren't anywhere near as bad as Ava. Watching the show and trying to figure out sometimes why you would possibly do what she does. I think reflects sometimes on what teachers feel with administration. The show helps the teachers feel seen and allows them to process the sometimes absurd realities of their jobs. Veteran teacher Barbara speaks directly to those realities early on in the second season. Being a teacher is being asked to do the impossible year after year. And our only solution is to show up every day and try our best. With the show's 9 p.m. start a few minutes away, the teachers settle in front of the TV. And Ms. Y starts live tweeting. See? It's a Valentine's Day episode, and second grade teacher Melissa has been waiting for her boyfriend to call. Look, we finally decided to text. Just when she thinks all hope is lost, he tells her to look at the vending machine in the teacher's lounge. The chip bags say, I love you. You love me? Yeah. I love the crap out of you. That's very Philly. I love the crap out of you, baby. The show ends, and the teachers clear out fast. After all, it is a school night. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Juhas in Philadelphia. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, the Celtics host the Toronto Raptors at the Garden. Tip-off time is in just about an hour. Celts will be without Jalen Brown, who's got a finger laceration. A day off for the Red Sox and Tigers. This is the Sox's first road trip of the season. They resume the series tomorrow and finish it up on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. With homegrown vegetable and flowering plants, perennials, pottery, soil, and mulch. Gardening workshops every Saturday in April. VolanteFarms.com. And Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com.